My brother need not be idealized or enlarged in death beyond what he was in life. To be remembered simply as a good and decent man who saw wrong and tried to right it, saw suffering and tried to heal it, saw war and tried to stop it. Those of us who loved him and who take him to his rest today pray that what he was to us and what he wished for others will someday come to pass for all the world. Teddy Kennedy eulogizing his brother Bobby. 49 years ago, the world shifted on its axis. The assassination of Bobby Kennedy after his victory in the California primary changed politics forever. In fact, it might not be too far-fetched to say that had Bobby survived, our politics and our country might look very different today. Sidney Shanberg, the great reporter, once told me that he thought the assassination of the Kennedys of Vietnam in the 60s represented the end of consensus politics in America. Since then, we have been searching for the politician or the leader that could bridge that divide. The irony has been that in a time of polarity, it's been impossible for that leader to emerge. So we look back to what might have been. And when we do, the image, the mythology, and the reality of Bobby Kennedy rises as almost an apparition from the body politic. Why? What was it about Bobby that made us think he was different? We've seen over the years the Republican Party play tough, hardball tactics in ways that many Democrats could never seem to pull off. This has always appeared to be a lack of toughness, a lack of instinct for the jugular, an inability to match an empathetic and compassionate agenda with the instincts of a street fighter. Bobby Kennedy embodied the ability to do that, to bring scathing political toughness to an agenda of compassion and empathy and love. Sounds simple, but it's no small feat, and it is captured eloquently by Chris Matthews in his new book, Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit. Chris Matthews is a former columnist, an author, a Kennedy scholar, of course, the host of MSNBC's Hardball, and it is my pleasure to welcome Chris Matthews back to this program to talk about Bobby Kennedy, a raging spirit. Chris, thanks so much for being here. Hey, Jeff, thank you for that <clears throat> very much. Great to have you here. You know, when we think of other political leaders or political heroes at a particular time, it's often a case where the time and the man have come together in a very unique way. When we think about Bobby Kennedy... It is almost timeless. We can put him in the present, put him in his own time, and those qualities and what he brought to it are almost universal. Talk about that first. Well, I think um, what you're talking about was capsulized or emblemized by the um, funeral train down from New York through New Jersey to uh, Washington when he was buried in Arlington with his brother. And along the train ride, you saw uh, clearly the kind of people that trusted him. They were the large numbers of African-Americans were spontaneously in Baltimore, 20,000 of them singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. They knew all the words from church, I assume. They just knew it, and, they, and that was the man they wanted to uh, express that sentiment about the Union together, us all together to him. And then there's the white working class, even, more, even lower than that, the poor, impoverished white people you saw saluting him in those small families along the, the, the trust, the patriotic affection they had for him. Well, that's what we need. And, uh, you know, everybody's not going to hang around and sing the same songs, enjoy the same music or even culture, but it, it would be great to have everybody share the same purpose and uh, 
and politics, really. And I think Bobby was the one. I mean, he would drive through a tough, changing town like Gary, Indiana, which had a lot of Eastern European ethnics in it who were scared of the, of the African-Americans moving in. And he would ride through town with uh, Tony Zale, the former middleweight champ, uh, on one side of him, Richard Hatcher, the first African-American mayor on the other side of him, expressing openly his uh, determination to bring people together. I mean, nobody does that. Uh, Trump never does that. The, uh, politicians, especially Trump, try to take their 40 percent and sort of screw the rest. And they, and they, and they know that builds the solidarity of their constituents. Uh, they seem to know that division works for them, whereas Bobby really tried to, he said, you know, waitresses and cops and firefighters are my people. At the same time, he's reaching out to minorities and, and embracing them. It, nobody seems to try to do that today. How was Bobby different than Jack in that respect? Well, you know, I've, I once heard a guy say Jack was the charm and Bobby was the uh, brains, but that's a little rough. I think Bobby, Jack was iconic. He had this elegance about him. He knew and I don't want to be too rough about this, but he knew exactly what things looked like. When he lost the fight for the Democratic nomination for vice president in 56, he knew to race up to that platform and endorse the guy who had just beaten him. And he knew, he knew the, the Peace Corps and what it would emblemize to the country. He knew the picture he'd present with the space program and going to the moon. He was always very clear in the picture he would present, even with Jacqueline Kennedy, his wife. I mean, he was always presenting this incredibly glamorous picture that we would say, yeah, that's what we want. Bobby was more, more soulful. He was thinking in his conscience all the time about the right thing to do. He was a big guy on right and wrong. He was enormously loyal. I'd say Jack was never, never as personally loyal as Bobby was. Bobby was even loyal to Joe McCarthy when he tried to drink himself to death and succeeded finally. I mean, even though he was part of the condemnation of McCarthy, he, he had his personal loyalty to a guy who was killing himself, basically. In bringing, the, bringing those people back from the Bay of Pigs, he was the one that cut the deal, Tractors for Freedom and all with Eleanor Roosevelt. He was the one that kept track of all the people we lost in the Bay of Pigs, and he got them home. And it was an amazing effort. He got no publicity or no praise for it, but I'd say conscience. I'd say he was our conscience. You, you talk about that his Catholic faith was a big part of that. You know, over the years, so much has been written about the fact that a lot of it came from what he experienced in his own family and the tragedies of his own family. But his Catholic faith was a big part of it. Talk about that. Well, there are a couple of things. I, I tried to figure out why is this guy born to wealth so empathetic? Why does he really seem to care? You know, and I, uh, people that are left out. And I, I really worked at it. And he would always talk about being Irish Catholic and how. I mean, I, this was overdone with me growing up. I, I listened to all this all the time and about how the Irish were mistreated by the Brits. They were starved to death in the famine. And then they came over here and the Yankees and the Protestants treated them badly. I always thought that was oversold because the African-American and Hispanic difficulty in fitting in here or being just Americans is much, much greater wall to climb. But I think the thing with him was his family. As you said, it was, he was the runt in the family. Imagine having your father call you the runt. <laughs> Uh, he was five, five, eight or so, average height. Uh, his brothers were big six-footers, handsome, confident. And Bobby was the awkward kid who had to really fight for his father's attention and, uh, and didn't really get it until he became this tough brother's uh, enforcer, the guy who got him elected to all those jobs. And Bobby was a sweeter guy in his person than he showed throughout much of his career. And only when the old man had his uh, stroke and became de de decapacitated that Bob, incapacitated, that Bobby began to really be that sweet guy that cared about Chicano farm workers 
uh, in their fights for for justice and and about even Native Americans and and the, and the people down in the Mississippi Delta, starving black people, people that ate molasses all day and had distended stomachs. I mean, I think it was that he understood what it was like to be overlooked. And yet, even when he became sweeter, he still had this kind of unique gift for making enemies along the way. Well, yeah, his sister Eunice said he had. She said that he had a gift for estrangement. <laughs> I mean, he really didn't like Roy Cohn, for example, who was working with McCarthy, uh, who I think was a bad guy. But he really didn't like, he thought Hoffa was the devil, the crooked labor leader. Um, he, uh, he, he, reckoned, he obviously saw a lot of real gangsters when he went into, ran the rackets committee from 57 to 59, through 59. But he made enemies. There's no doubt. He and Lyndon Johnson have been compared to two dogs meeting on the street and uh, both wanting the same patch of sidewalk. And, uh, and it began way back in 1940 when Johnson was out bragging about how he was there when, jo- when FDR said he was going to fire uh, Bobby's father as ambassador to Britain. But it really went on and on and on. And Bobby earned his share of the, of the grief from the other guy. He was as tough on Johnson as Johnson was ever tough on him. He just never forgave him for for abusing the family name and going after the family. He just, he, when they, especially when he called Jack, when he accused Jack of being an umbrella, Chamberlain umbrella guy who thought that, uh, that Hitler was, was great. I mean, he, Johnson, well, I shouldn't say Bobby was worse than Johnson. They were pretty worse to each other in the way they attacked each other. There's also this quality, and I, I think there's the quote from Arthur Schlesinger, who talks about Bobby as a romantic disguised as a realist. I mean, a romantic disguised as a street fighter. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are scenes in this, and he truly is a romantic, and Jack was much more the realist, the uh, colder one. Bobby, uh, the scenes that will grab you, uh, anybody who reads the book, uh, first of all, the poignance of the way he was for McCarthy personally, but even though he had to help bring him down, and he knew he was wrong and learned all the evil ways that McCarthy dealt with witnesses before his committee and swore that he would never do that as head of the Rackets Committee, chief counsel there. But uh, he... Um, <laughs> he, he, when he went in to see the governor, Mike DeSalle of Ohio, and DeSalle had said he would support Jack, but the Kennedy people were very suspicious. They thought he was really not going to be for them. He was going to be for Symington, another candidate from Missouri. And, he, and Bobby's job was to go in and basically rubber hose the guy, get the guy to do it, come out for Kennedy, no matter what he had to say. And it was frightening. He did the same thing with the governor of Maryland, Governor Toss. He would get what he wanted. And uh, if these guys weren't going to back his brother, he was going to make them back his brother. And that's a big part of that 60 campaign. There's only a few primaries, New Hampshire, Wisconsin, West Virginia. There's just a few of them. And what really was the, the power of the Kennedys was to get people to back them whether they liked it or not. And Bobby was the enforcer. You yeah, said, you're right. Bobby the, was the enforcer. And there's also this ability that Bobby evolves later on. And in some ways, I think it comes out of this, that he's able to be the enforcer and a uniter at the same time later on. You know, that is the hardest job. You know, uh, it, we look back on people like Franklin Roosevelt and uh, who could unite, and we think, well, they're, they're so political. But then say, wait a minute, you have to be really political to be able to keep, in, in the case of Roosevelt, Southern segregationists allied with ethnic people up north in the big cities that had really nothing in common. And... Uh, and, and bring the black voter into the community at the same time you're defending people in the South, right, uh, right-winger, basically, white people. And it takes political skill and effort. And I think Bobby was probably the last that was able to appeal to 
the ethnic solidarity of, of Italians, Catholics, uh, uh, Jewish people, all kinds of people who felt that they were sort of kept out of the, the action by the Protestant majority. And and at the same time, he was able to uh, to, to keep enough of the, uh, bring in minority people. I mean, it's tough to get to convince ethnic people in big cities that they've got something in common with the rising uh, number of people who are African-American or Hispanic. It's just a challenge. And the Kennedys did it. They held it together because they, as Bobby just, he felt that those were his people. Jack Newfield said this beautifully, the columnist, that Bobby just felt at home. I remember my first job in Washington after I got back from Africa in the Peace Corps was uh, working a patronage job. I'd be a cop at night with a uniform and a gun, the whole works. And, and Harry Reid had one of these jobs. And then in the daytime, I worked for a senator from Utah, the last liberal, Frank Moss. And I got to tell you, I hung out with a cop, actually a building engineer, who said that the only liberal Democratic senator, and a lot of them could be pretty snooty, that always said hello to the cops was Bobby. And, I, and that always stuck with me, that he was a guy who was truly Democratic and also uh, didn't think of himself as better than somebody having a ba- basic you know, 8,000-year job like a cop. He didn't think himself superior to those people. He felt he called his staff people, but not only they called him Bob, not Bobby, and he hung out with his staff. Jack never did that. Jack never had staff people around him socially. Bobby did. Bobby was, a, a tr- as Ethel told me when I interviewed her, she said, my, she said Bobby was born a Democrat, and she meant lowercase d. How much of that came from this kind of moral clarity that he seemed to have? Well, I grew up with it, so I know what he meant. I, we, we had this, I was 20 years younger than him, and, and I know the same catechism we were taught. It's, uh, I used to, the nuns would show us three milk bottles in the, in, the, in the textbook. One milk bottle was white. That meant you were without sin. One was like a, like a black and white milkshake. You know, it was darker than white, but it wasn't black, and that was you had venial sin. And the uh, dark one was mortal sin. You're going to hell. And I'm telling you, if you want to know what good and evil are taught, they taught it pretty strictly. Now, Bobby, Bobby rebelled against that. Early on when he was at Harvard, there was a priest there. We knew him in school because he was a poet. And, um, and he was preaching no salvation outside the church. And Bobby went crazy over that. You can't say that the people aren't Catholic or Protestant or Jewish. You can't say they're not, they're not going to heaven. And he wrote a letter to the paper. He railed against the cardinal. And uh, his, his mother, Rose Kennedy, thought he was re- really in trouble with the church, but he just thought that was totally unfair. And it was so Bobby that at that age he was just declaring war on people that were being unfair. And there is this sense that, that he brings to that, as I talked a little bit about in the introduction, this ability to be a street fighter for moral justice. And, and that's how he seemed to reconcile that. Yeah, well... I guess growing up, I would say he was Michael the Archangel. He was the angel with the sword, you know. <laughs> Don't mess with this guy. Uh, he was tough. I mean, he would get in fights with Roy Cohn, for example, who worked with him on the. Uh, it was superior to him on the McCarthy committee, and they were in, they were close to fist fights. And Roy was one tough customer, and it it, it really came to, to to fists. And he would uh, he he was he was fearless. I think that was part of it too. I think he just was the the little kid. I went to school with guys like this. Some kid named Flanagan always got beat up at school every single day. And it was just part of his, who he was. He didn't mind fighting for what he believed in and for just his family. Mm-hmm. He did it. It's, it's tough. You said in the beginning it'd be good to have people who believed in right and wrong and would fight for the right. And um, Bobby was the guy who believed in law and order but also believed in compassion for people in trouble. 
he thought he, he would never take sides in a black lives issue versus cops. He would say the law should be for justice. And if he saw somebody abusing their power, he went crazy about it, whether it's a Southern governor or anybody. He just, he believed law should be just, but you need law to have justice. And that's why the Justice Department building is named after him. He really did believe that law could bring justice. It's interesting about Roy Cohn and, and his whole relationship with Bobby. In many ways, Bobby is the good son, and, and, and the current president is the bad, the evil son of Roy Cohn. Isn't that funny? I, I think, here's a great one. If, you, if, you, if you're into Eastern ethnic uh, uh, social politics, there's a scene that I got from Kenny O'Donnell, uh, who is Jack's close friend, and even closer to Bobby. They were on the football team together at Harvard. And he... Uh, he talked about a place one night, one time during the Army McCarthy hearings in 1954, when McCarthy finally had his fall. And there's this fight going on that people can actually see on television between Roy Cohn, who is McCarthy's favorite, really, and Bobby. And McCarthy and and, and Roy Cohn is the real tough anti-communist, and Bobby's seen as somewhat more moderate or more liberal. And all the Irish guys in the bar are all rooting for Roy Cohn, not Bobby. And a lot of these guys had some anti-Semitism in them. This is back in the early 50s. And yet they thought Bob, Bobby was the enemy, that, the, that Roy Cohn was their hero because he was a vicious anti-communist. But that's the kind of weird socio-whatever uh, uh, overlays were going on at the time. Everything was about the Cold War, getting the communists, and nobody was more vicious or ruthless than Roy Cohn. And Bobby loved McCarthy, but he thought McCarthy was going way too far, destroying himself, and he blamed Cohn. He just did. Talk about his decision to get in the race in 68, and, and, and it's the one area that there's often so much criticism, that, sure. that he waited so long, that he was this Johnny-come-lately after McCarthy had laid the groundwork. Well, I was with McCarthy back then, and I shared that sentiment, I can tell you, as a, as a grad student. We were all rooting for McCarthy in the beginning, and then I ended up praying for Bobby, because Bobby was the only one that could beat Humphrey. McCarthy, I never felt, could take on the establishment. He was not as strong a figure. He didn't have that history with so many ethnic and other groups. He didn't have that compelling ability to draw on all that strength that the Kennedy brothers had together to beat someone as awesome as Humphrey, who had all the backing of the big city politicians and, and the president. And Lyndon was pushing Humphrey like mad. Um, I, I, I think what happened was this, and I've had some revisionism in all the d digging I've done. We all thought that McCarthy had the, had the guts to run, and he did. But McCarthy was sort of, sort of um, ambivalent about his career. He was well, he ended up quitting it in 1970, just two years later, giving up the Senate. He didn't really like being a senator. Bobby, on the other hand, uh, had a lot to give up because Bobby had a plan to become president in 1972. It was about to be handed to him. Uh, all the party regulars were with him. If he just waited his turn, he would be able to revive bring back uh, the new frontier, which is what his number one goal in life was to, in those days was to bring back what Jack had built. And so when he had finally brought himself to run, when he sort of said, I have to do it now, he, he really struggled not to do it. He went to see uh, Clark Clifford, the Secretary of Defense for Johnson. He and uh, Ted Sorensen, the speechwriter and ally of the Kennedys, they went to see him over the Pentagon, and they tried to cut a deal whereby Johnson would agree to create a commission to look at U.S. Vietnam policy and review the whole thing and change it. And, then, and Bobby said, if you do that, if you create a commission like this, it really is even-handed and looks at this war, honestly, I won't run. So even up till Thursday, before he announced on Saturday, that day he was still trying to cut a deal to stay out of the fight. He did not want to, to, to divide the Democratic Party, as he put it, three ways, between, among him, 
McCarthy and, and the Humphrey people, or at the time Johnson's people, he was still in the race. He really didn't want to disrupt the party, and he really thought he would be destroying his political chances. His brother Ted was against him running. Theodore Sarsden was against him running. The young Red Hots, like Walensky and others on the committee, were for it. But, uh, and his wife was for it. Ethel was for it. But it was really divided. And he, um, it's just a, a think about, I call the last chapter sacrifice because he basically decided to sacrifice the sure thing for the way outside chance of winning in 68. You talk about the fact that he wanted to restore the new frontier. What did that mean to him in, in real politic terms? Well, I think all the liberal things we think of, civil rights, I think, up front, I think the sort of looking forward, uh, the Peace Corps, the positive attitude towards the war, uh, the Cold War that we can maybe, if we're lucky, get around it, avoid a nuclear war with the Soviets, find a way to win the war on the, on the ground in the third world uh, with uh, economic development and showing them that we have a better system. All the, I guess, trying to find peace with, ultimately with Khrushchev through back channels. He was always working that through his friend, Georgi Bolshakov, always trying to find some way to avoid a war with the Soviets. Um, I think at home it was civil rights, it was economic development, it was growth. You know, it was that sort of center-left Kennedy uh, program, um, which would be up against the, the hard conservative or Johnson. He thought Johnson was just kind of gross. He just didn't he, didn't, he thought Johnson just threw money at welfare and things like that and really didn't understand how to bring people up. I, he, on his own, by the way, he thought that welfare was, was debilitating. He thought it wasn't helping people develop for themselves. And he had sort of a, I would call it a neoliberal, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? A neoliberal approach, which was a refined New Dealism. With civil rights, it was complicated, though, because of, of what, Jack didn't do, and, and what Johnson was able to accomplish. Yeah, I think Johnson was able to accomplish it in a way, to some large extent, because of Jack's martyrdom. I think the atmosphere in the early, in the late Jack was it when Jack died, he was working uh, with the Senate, actually the House Judiciary Committee. He was working with Richard Daly of Chicago. I remember to bring aboard one of the guys who was trying to go too far. Some of the liberals on the Judiciary Committee were trying to go further than on civil rights than uh, could have ever gotten through the Congress. And he was trying to keep them in line, working, you know, strong-arming people on that committee from Chicago, one guy in particular, and he got And then he was working through the Cardinal to get somebody in, the Cardinal in Philadelphia to get somebody else on that committee to get in line with them. So he was trying to push it through, get the thread through the needle. But at the same time, they faced, as you suggest, these Southern guys to control the Rules Committee, who were going to stop it no matter how far they got there at some point to kill the bill. And Johnson, because he was a Southerner and pretty much a tough guy, he was able to use the martyrdom of Kennedy, the let us continue theme and, and spirit of the country to get it done. But there's no doubt that Johnson's greatest moment was, was the civil rights bill. And, and it's been celebrated ever since and rightfully so that in those months, early months of, um, 64, he, he accomplished something that no president had ever been able to do. So much of the divide that we see in the country today has its antecedents or a lot of antecedents in the 60s, in the Vietnam era, in this division that, that we've been talking about that was going on at that time. What is your sense of what Bobby could have brought to that and how things might be fundamentally different today? Well, we know if you just look at at the Donald Trump uh, constituency, um, it's basically drawn uh, the rural 
white people, poor rural white people, non-college, it's always done as non-college or college educated. The, the rural non-college people are, are country folk who, who have, you know, a keen support for things like guns and, uh, and coal. And it's cultural and it's economic mixed together, and it's real. It's real. And I think some, some racism at the edges, I wouldn't say that was the main part of it, but a piece of that. And they don't like the white, the black advance in this country. I understand that piece of it, but there's no sense arguing with people that, that the, people like that are not going to change. You've got to work with the other people who are not driven by that, who are worried about economic change. And then you take the, uh, the, the people I grew up, or I came from really the, the white ethnic, if you will, the non-college, my cousins living in New Jersey, they're for Trump, and and I think that has to do with maybe they didn't get educational breaks, uh, but they have a, they have a sense that they're that they're being pushed out of their old neighborhoods by the moving in of African Americans and Hispanics. I mean, there's that thing we're all very familiar with. I think Bobby would have made a real effort and probably succeeded at keeping the trust of what he called the the cops, the the waitresses, and the firefighters, the whites, if you will keeping them at the same time he was advancing the cause and justice for the others, for the minority people, ethnic minority people. And I think that is, that is a really tough thing to pull off. And uh, I think Johnson did it for a while in the first uh, term, when he got elected the first time in his own right. But by 68, it was coming apart. The hard hats were fighting with the long hairs, the people who are for the war, uh, the hard hats, the construction workers, most emblematically against the college kids, uh, the privileged college kids in some cases, I think he could have fought that by simply ending the war. I think you were right. That was when the war, the war really started that class str- struggle between uh, working class people and the better off middle class or upper middle class in terms of educational potential and, and the advantages they had. And I think he would have, uh, I think you're right. I think that war really triggered that, that um, animosity that's still there. I mean, it was there when Nixon got in trouble, the people that were sticking with him. And well, it was, it was I mean, on, on a class line. Yeah, Reagan picked them off at first as the Reagan Democrats, as they were right. called. And then Nixon picked them off as the, a larger segment, as the silent majority. Well, one thing is, and this is just me, I don't expect everybody to agree with me about this. I think Bobby and the Kennedys, like a lot of ethnic people, uh, second or third generation, have a gut patriotism. Not some ethereal thing. But some feeling in the gut and the stomach and the heart when the flag goes up. And they, they think about America in a very strong, a visceral way. It isn't something aloof. I mean, Obama would be more of an aloof uh, patriot, but a more gut kind of patriotism the Kennedys were part of. And, and the people that felt, people felt that was the way they were. All the kids, they all fought in World War II. They all went off. They didn't have to take these dangerous assignments. One of them got killed. One almost got killed. The other did his best to get out of officer training so he could get into, a, into active duty. That was Bobby. They just were patriotic kids and, and gung-ho, gut pro-American people. And I think that was something they identified, they connected with working white people about. I mean, when I was a cop, somebody said to me on the Hill, he said, a working guy from West Virginia called me aside because I was a college kid. And he goes, you know what? You know why the little man loves his country, Chris? And I said, I don't know. He says, because... It's always got, and understanding that about poor white people, especially uh, their love of country is so unitary. It's who they are because they've been in the military, uh, have been enlisted guys, draftees probably, and the one thing that they really have is that sense of having served and and the love they have for the country they served. and And I think that the Kennedys had that, and I think a lot of liberals today, uh, who are good people, don't have that gut. 
feeling and experience that goes with it. And I think that's what people on the white side of this racial and ethnic and class divide in this country saw in the Kennedys. Chris Matthews, the book is Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit. Chris, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, you know your stuff. I really appreciate it. And I think people my age and a bit younger uh, hunger for this, um, what I'm talking about, this, uh, this uh, empathy for people, but also a, a really tough love of country. Chris Matthews, thanks so much. Hey, thanks, Jeff.